Our scripture reading this morning uh, is from the book of Romans, chapter 5. Normally, we read opposite whatever we are preaching in, and as we are continuing our series in the Psalms this summer, uh, we have a number of readings out of Romans. Today is Romans 5. Daryl, if you could come and read it for us. Romans 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, we are continuing in our series in the Psalms, uh, both this week and next week, the long weekend. uh, We'll be doing some Psalms before we kick off our fall series, uh, but today we are in Psalm 34. We chose a number of psalms from what's called the first book of the Psalms, 1 through 41, uh, a variety of kind of tone and theme and content and all that kind of stuff. So we are in 34 today, which we will talk about in a second. But before we do, Tyler is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along on the back middle portion of the bulletin. Tyler. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Sorry, one sec. All right, imagine for a moment that you are a warrior in ancient times. You're on the run from your arch enemy. You're forced to flee your homeland, flee to a different land you don't know very well. And accidentally, you find yourself in the kingdom and eventually in the hall, like the courtroom, of your second biggest enemy. He also wants to kill you. While imprisoned in his court, while this uh, king is deciding what to do with you, you come up with a daring and genius scheme of pretending to be insane so your second biggest enemy will think you harmless and release you. And against all odds, it works. He believes you. He thinks, oh, this, guy's, this, uh, this person is mad, and you're freed. You're free to leave. And also, somehow, in the time you spent in your second biggest enemy's court has brought you breathing room from your, your top enemy, your first enemy, who gave up chasing you when you got caught uh, by the other guy. What sorts of thoughts, what sorts of feelings would you have as you breathed the free air? I think for many of us, we'd be congratulating ourselves. Look at me. So incredibly clever. Be excited, be relieved that the scheme had worked. It'd be a story worth telling again and again around some campfires, how you escape from not just one, but two enemies with your courage and your daring and your cleverness. Perhaps if it is ancient times, you'd wonder, are the poets going to write songs, you know, about, about what I've done here? I think for most of us, that's what we'd feel and think if we'd escape from multiple enemies with an ingenious plan, but it's not. It's not what King David does. In the inscription of Psalm 34, which Tyler read, it says, David wrote this psalm when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that Abimelech drove him out and let him go. Essentially, I've related to you the story. David was running from Saul. He fled into the Philistine lands, got taken to the court of Abimelech, feigns madness, tricks Abimelech, and is turned loose eventually and enjoys this time of respite. And then he writes a psalm about it. He writes poetry about what happened. And there's boasting here. There's glorying here. There's a story of deliverance here. But the attribution arrow is not pointed towards David. It's pointed towards God. And we learn in Psalm 34 how we ought to think about our successes and our difficulties, what it means to rejoice in the Lord and to pursue the good life despite trouble. I've got three points, if, you're, if this helps you to follow along. We'll first talk about this idea of boasting in the Lord. What's David doing in the first part of the psalm? Then we'll talk about the location of the good life, some of these questions he asks and answers. And then part three, the end of the psalm, what, what about trouble? What about trouble? So first, boasting in the Lord. Now, if you go and read the story, 1 Samuel 21, if you want to go read it, the end of 1 Samuel 21, there's not much credited to God in the writing of that story. So the idea to feign insanity, it's attributed to David. The courage, the daring it took, of course, uh, also attributed to David. Yeah, when David thinks about that experience, when he reflects on it, he, he starts by saying in Psalm 34, in the first person, I will bless the Lord at all times. Or you can kind of render it, you can kind of retranslate it. I will bless the Lord every single time. So right from the very start, the arrow of responsibility, not pointed towards David, it's pointed towards God. Now, it's still a curious phrase, I will bless the Lord. Have you thought about what that means? Most of us must know what it means for God to bless us. It's like he's going to give me something, right? He's blessing me, I'm getting something. What does it mean for a human to bless God? Are we, are we giving something to God? 
Well, the tricky part about this is this phrase is used two ways in the Bible. Blessing someone or blessing something can have the connotation of giving something to them, enriching them in some way. Not always money, but, you know, status or whatever. Being blessed by a great cup of coffee, just I'm enriched by that experience. That's, that's a fine way to use the word blessing. But blessing can also refer to simply speaking a good word about someone or something. Not necessarily to enrich them, but just so that they are enriched in the broader community. So you can bless a person, you can bless God by speaking a good word about them. And that's what David's doing. 1 Samuel 21 again tells us David goes from the court of the Philistines to the cave of Adullam. And I kind of wonder, is that where he composed this psalm? We can't know, of course. But it is clear, in the mind of David, as he looks back on his escape, the word he wants to speak is not a word about himself, it's a good word about God. David's offering praise, not to his own cleverness, but to God. And if you look at verse 2, David's like, I gotta boast a little bit, I wanna do a little bit of bragging, but not in his ingenuity, again, in God. And if you continue to read, the language changes from David personally giving thanks, personally boasting in God, to this kind of invitation, end of verse 2 and in verse 3. Anyone who can hear this psalm, he wants them to join him in doing the same. So for David, it's not enough to do it personally. For him to speak good words about God, he wants all of God's people, which by nature, by extension, includes us, to do the same. And I just want to think for a moment about what a radical departure this is from our normal way of being in the world. See, all of us, we have an identity, we have a way we think about ourselves, we have things that we feel good of about ourselves, things we feel proud of, things that make us who we are. Now, some of that's relatively neutral, but here's the question that David sort of, he's kind of indirectly asking. When you look back on your greatest successes, what do you think is at the bottom of them? Upon what foundation are your greatest successes built? Let's say completing some level of higher education is what you consider to be your greatest accomplishment. Okay, what was the foundation of that success? Hard work, determination, raw intelligence, IQ. Let's say you built a successful company. That's a great accomplishment. What was at the bottom of that great company? Superior strategy, business acumen, you know, hard work again. Let's say you've been married for decades and you haven't strayed, not even once. No adultery, no affairs, no inappropriate relationships. G good for you. That, that's an amazing accomplishment. Where did that faithfulness come from? When you give marriage advice, what do you tell other people? What David has learned is that an enduring identity, a solid self, can only have one foundation, which is God. And if a boast has to be made, if you're going to brag about something, the only thing a Christian should be bragging about is God. A Christian ought to recognize all they have, all the things that have led to all their successes, whatever they are, are gifts from God. So you worked hard. Great. Where did the ability to work hard come from? You have a brilliant business mind. You saw an opportunity that really no one else saw. All right, who gave you that mind? See, the Christians have, we, we have a source problem. If we're going to attribute our, our attributes, our, our characteristics to something other than God, but also a self that takes for its foundation something that's not God, whether it's intelligence, moral effort, hard work, beauty, whatever it is, that's not a firm foundation, even though it seems like it might be. Why? Because if you look at verses 4 through 7, eventually you're going to face fears. That's the end of verse 4. Eventually you're going to face shame. End of verse 5. 
Eventually, you're going to feel poor in some way, verse 6. Eventually, you're going to run into some kind of of trouble, verse 6. And eventually, you're going to face enemies, implied in verse 7. So the problem with building an identity, making a boast about something like intelligence, it's not secure enough. There's going to be someone who's smarter than you. Also, your intelligence, not infallible. Your brain is going to mess up. The problem with boasting in business accomplishments is someone has more. <laughs> so Warren Buffett has more money than you. Not all your ventures will work. It's just not stable ground. The problem with boasting about beauty is that it fades. And someone will always be more beautiful or more to the current taste than you are. To live like a Christian, David says, it's to look back on your greatest successes and see God behind them. To see that it was God. He gave you the ability and the strength to work hard. God who granted you faithfulness to endure. And it's God who enabled David to run this elaborate ruse on Abimelech. By the way, that doesn't negate human agency. David doesn't doesn't depreciate his role. He doesn't say, I didn't do anything. He just says, God is the one deserving of praise. God gave me all the things I needed. The arrow of boasting, the arrow of glory, not towards David, towards God, And he wants us to magnify God with him. Now that actually means two things. First, it means that we ought to rejoice whenever God does something good for any one of us. We can rejoice in how God delivered someone else from a tough situation. We can rejoice when someone else gets a promotion. We can rejoice in the faithfulness of not our marriage, a different marriage. But secondly, it means that when God does something for us corporately, for us as a church, We magnify him for that. We boast in him for that. It means that as a church, we attribute whatever success we've had, whatever we've built here over the last 10 years to God. We don't say, well, it was hard work plus some roosters plus good timing or whatever, and and that's the the secret of the success. No, no, whatever we have, anything we have as a church is because God gave it to us because he was doing it in us. He is the boast. Now, if you're a more skeptical and cynical sort of person, and I sometimes land there, but maybe you're just wondering, is this just a mind game? Aren't we just playing games with where we are attributing our boasts? Well, David says something interesting. I think it's going to be helpful to you. If you look at verse 8, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Now, that's a metaphor. In case you're wondering, God can't taste him. Uh, God is not a thing you can see. God's spirit Taste and see, that's an appeal to experience. It's an invitation to the skeptical who are reading this psalm. You don't have to do endless thought experiments. You don't have to keep wondering about it. You can just start living it out and see what happens. As a teenager, I taught windsurfing at summer camp. It's a hard sport to teach, especially like eight-year-olds, <laughs> nine-year-olds or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, when you teach windsurfing, you give a general explanation. You kind of explain, here's how the sail works. Here's what it does. The order you should do things when you get out on the water, how to steer, all that stuff. But what we realized, and if you've tried windsurfing, or many sports are like this, but the best way to learn to windsurf is to go out on the water and begin. To, to feel with your body, uh, not just understand with the mind, oh, this is what happens. When I move the sail like this, I change direction or whatever. And in a similar way, life with God is not best understood merely by ideas. I know things about God, but by experiential encounter. David just says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Get out on the board, pull up the sail, and see what happens. 
And David, of course, says, you'll see he provides, you'll see he comes through, you see he supplies good things. But you don't know until you try. Okay, so that's part one, boasting in the Lord. Let's talk about part two. The location of the good life. Now, because we don't speak Hebrew, I mean, I know there's like one or two of you that do, but most of us, we can't see, we don't notice that this psalm has a hidden structure. It's actually an acrostic poem where the first line of each verse starts with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if you are a Hebrew nerd and you're like reading along in Hebrew, there is one letter missing and one letter repeated, so just, I I, I know that. But mainly, it's an acrostic structure. And I mention this, not just to impress you with my research, but because up until the end of verse 10, the psalm reads very much like a traditional psalm of thanks. God is good. Thank you for rescuing me. I'm so thankful, you know, etc., etc. It feels pretty normal. But then all of a sudden, in verse 11, it becomes very Proverbs-like. It gets all instructional on us. In verse 11, David calls all of us, all the hearers, children. Children. And you need to come and listen. I got something to tell to you. It's very like Proverbs. You read that all over the place in Proverbs. Verse 12, David's asking rhetorical questions and offering pithy sayings by way of answers. Again, very proverbial. That sort of turn in the tone of the psalm, I think it only makes sense if you understand the acrostic structure. The poet isn't losing his mind. He's using the acrostic to convey the full understanding of what happened in Philistia. He arrives at like the middle of the Hebrew alphabet and was like, oh, I haven't, I haven't gotten to everything I want to say. Or imagine you were writing a letter to a dear friend and you're using uh, the English alphabet for an acrostic and you get to K and you're like, can't think of a K word, you know, that, that describes my friend and it forces you to think dip, deeper or like a lateral way uh, than you might have otherwise. So David, he's boasting, he's praising, he's thanking God. That's where his mind went first. And now he's in this thing where he's like, oh, I've also learned some things. There's some wisdom here. Verse 11, an invitation to listen, as I said, by putting us in the place of children, by putting me too, I'm not, not just you, all of us, uh, we are reminded we don't know everything. David's got some wisdom from God we don't have. Verse 12 is a rhetorical question, and if you're like, what does that mean? I'm not, I left school a long time ago. It just means it's a question that assumes an answer. Does anyone want a good life and want to live a long time and see good things? It's like, yep, like we all raise our hand. The, the, the assumed answer is positive to that question. We'd all like the good life. So David follows it up, and this is where it gets kind of interesting. He says, if you want a good life, be full of goodness. You want a good life? do good. <laughs> don't, don't do evil things. Don't be deceitful. Just do good things all the time. Now, this is where I had an issue as I was reading this psalm, thinking about it this week. Where does David get that from? How does that lesson possibly relate to a narrow escape from a Philistine king? The praise and boasting stuff, that makes sense to me. Where does this wisdom come from? I was, I was, as I was working through the psalm this week, I was thinking about it. And let me explain as best I can where I think he's getting it from. Maybe the, the way his, his train of thoughts would have gone. I, I don't think this is a bolt from the blue. Here's a train of thought. How did David get into hot water in the first place? Well, he got there because Saul was chasing him. Why was Saul chasing him? Because Samuel, by, by instruction from God, anointed him and called him to be king. And David was sort of living into that calling. So in short, as David went back and thought about it, he's like, I got to Abimelech's court because I was doing good, not evil. 
I got into life-threatening trouble because I was moving with God, not moving against God. So we might assume, based on that experience, if we want the good life, the good life is not found with God, but outside of God. Right? Because we look at, look at what happened to David. Living with goodness was what got him into trouble. Maybe the good life is not found with God. That sort of argument, by the way, is an echo of the very first lie ever told by Satan, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. The serpent told them, obedience to God is not the way to happiness. It's not the way to a full life. It's not the way to be all you want to be. And since that day, that same lie has passed into each one of our hearts. We believe, on some level, sometimes, we would be happier if we, not God, were deciding our lives. Now, we're not always blatant. We're not always very obvious about it. Maybe you have trouble admitting that even to yourself. But sometimes, do you wonder if generous giving puts your finances behind, or Sunday morning dawns bright and early and you don't really want to go, or honesty costs you at work, or a friend speaks uh, badly about you and you want to respond in kind or whatever, it can feel, this life, it can feel like goodness has no reward. It can feel like the good life is found apart from God, not with God. And I wonder if these are the thoughts that crossed David's mind when he was drooling and feigning madness in the Philistine court. And I think he writes verses 11 through 14 to remind us of what is really true. If you want life, if you want many good days, if you want goodness, it's only found with God. Evil may tempt, but, but there's no life there. Deceitful speech might taste good going down, but there's no satisfaction there. The location of the good life is with God, even if it takes you into life-threatening places. David doesn't shy away from a warning either. Verse 15, consoles those who seek God. God's watching over them. We'll talk about this in a minute. Verse 16, though, to those who refuse to seek God, the face of the Lord is against them. Even though we think David's experience might lead to the opposite, the location of the good life, he says, is with God, not against God, or apart from God. But I really want to spend the rest of our time talking about part three. What about trouble? Because the rest of the psalm sort of deals with it. It's, it's a lingering question. We boast in God for our successes. We find that the good life is in God alone. What comes next? Is the rest of life just smooth? Once we've learned these lessons, is there anything else that remains? Look at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. All their troubles. What comes next for the righteous? Troubles, plural, plural troubles, lots of troubles. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. <laughs> it's not terribly encouraging. Even if you trust God, even if you pursue the good life in him, there will still be troubles, afflictions, and plenty of them. So let me say clearly this morning, if you're wondering this, Maybe my trouble is because I am not righteous enough. Maybe my afflictions are because I have boasted in my own accomplishments. I'm not boasting in God very well. I'm being kind of prideful. Perhaps, but not necessarily. David says over and over, trouble comes to the righteous. Afflictions come to those who are pursuing good. That's not necessarily a sign of God's judgment. It can simply be part of life. The righteous have trouble. Now you'll want to protest. I want to protest. That doesn't seem very fair. 
That doesn't seem like the good life. Why be righteous if I'm just going to be afflicted like everyone else? Well, the answer is in verse 18. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. There's something about trouble, there's something about affliction that draws the attention and the kind ministry of God to us. He sees those in trouble. He hears their cries. He draws near to them. This means trouble itself is a means by which we draw closer to God. Remember I was saying in the second part, good life is found in God. Well, how do we get closer to God? Through trouble. It's when God draws close. Now that is not our favorite formula. (laughs) But I'll tell you, when you are in the midst of a trouble, it means a great deal. Now I was writing this section on Friday of this past week. And I have this little uh, uh, office in my basement, little, little, little dark room in my basement where I write sermons. And I was trying to hammer out this final point and kind of wrestling with it. And in the other room, uh, approximately eight feet away or so, uh, my children were fighting. Nothing crazy, normal kid stuff, but it's loud, you know, whatever. And it set me off. Because how can I write a sermon about trouble drawing God's attention when you guys won't stop fighting? Yeah, it sounds funny to you, but it was not very funny in that moment. Because if I believed the things I had written, that trouble draws me close to God, and that God comes close to those who are getting busted up by life, I would have understood domestic difficulties in my house are part of the means by which I enter the good life with God. Domestic difficulties and troubles, that's part of me understanding that my identity as a good parent, that's not a solid foundation upon which I can build a life. Or my vocation as a pastor, that's not a stable base upon which I can put stuff on. But to a parent drowning in parenting, we remember in that moment of trouble, God is parenting everyone in the room, as Paul David Tripps likes to say. So God is trying to parent me while I'm trying to parent my children. I'm not trying to escape from an evil king. You're probably not either. I am just trying to say something I'm not going to have to apologize for later on. And I realize that's kind of trite, maybe. Maybe you've got more substantial trouble and affliction in your life. Some of you do. The principle applies. Whatever you are drowning in, God hears it, and he sees it, and he's actually, it's in that moment, in those those extremely difficult moments that God is drawing close to you, and he's actually pulling you further into life with him. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will write, our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And by the way, he says light and momentary, and Paul is just sort of in a different category. He's talking about being like shipwrecked and stoned and all this kinds of stuff. Our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. They are drawing us into the good life with God. Does it always end happy? No, Friday, not a particular happy moment in my life. You don't escape unscathed, but God is close. And King David has understood something very important. The time he spent in the court of Abimelech drew him closer to God, drew God's attention in a special way to him. And David can on one hand say, I would never choose this for myself. And also say, I understand how God is using it. And so God 
doesn't just redeem encounters with evil kings. He redeems and works in our parenting disasters, our career failures, our midlife crises, our retirement crises, 